Greetings, fellow myth makers. The Myth in the Mojave episode you are about to hear features an interview with Stephen Geringer from the Joseph Campbell Foundation, which originally aired on August 17, 2013. Enjoy. Hello, friends, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, a weekly half hour of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important for our lives today. I'm your host, Catherine Savela. I live in Joshua Tree, although I am not there right now, actually. Uh, And I'm pleased to bring this show to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free Joshua Tree. I'm really excited this week because I've got a special treat for you. Uh, My dear friend, Steve Geringer, who is one of the principal players at the Joseph Campbell Foundation, has agreed to tell us a story and talk to us a little bit about mythology and why it's important. I'm just very grateful to have Steve here today. Thank you, Catherine. That was a sweet introduction. And I have this incredible sense of deja vu, as if we've done this before, (laughs) maybe even a couple of times. And we probably will again, if that reincarnation thing is true. The Joseph Campbell Foundation was created uh, with the idea of, well, our mission statement, to preserve, protect, and perpetuate Joseph Campbell's work. And the first two parts of that in particular, preserve and protect, that certainly centers on Joseph Campbell and his work. We keep his work in print. We create new original works based on his material, uh, his notes, uh, lectures that we've turned into books. Uh, we are releasing a number of lectures on audio. We've released a lot of video lectures. Uh, we archive his material, his letters to and from people like Thomas Munn and Carl Jung you know, and, and others. We donate those once those are cataloged and digitized to the Opus Archives and Research Center, which is located in the grounds of the Pacifica Graduate Institute. They maintain Joseph Campbell's personal library there. The Joseph Campbell Foundation, though, also perpetuates Joseph Campbell's work. That doesn't mean we present ourselves as the new Joseph Campbell. A lot of people are constantly asking me that. I'm one of the first people that anyone connects with, with the foundation, because part of my portfolio, or the hat I wear, carries the word community. I reach out to the wider mythological community, though we trade hats a lot. Frankly, for us, the situation is the boss, so we do you know, what needs to be mm-hmm. done to make sure the work is out there. In terms of perpetuating Joseph Campbell's work, though, we try to function as a clearinghouse, for all things mythological. So, you know, we reach out to other people, fellow travelers in the same area. There isn't any one specific new Joseph Campbell who's out there. In a sense, all of us who are drawn to myth are perpetuating the work of Joseph Campbell. Those of us who want to take it off of the shelves of the library, those dusty tomes, you know, brush them off and bring it out into the street, into where we live, because that's really what Joe did. Mm-hmm. You know, he helped people see not just how myth was relevant 
200 years ago on the prairies you know, in Middle America or 2,000 years ago in Greece or Jerusalem. But how it's relevant today, what is the message of myth for us? And so that's how I engage it too. You know, that my work with the foundation, yes, but I was drawn to Joseph Campbell the way so many others are, you know, through reading his work, through hearing him, I had to approach it in terms of where I live because this is something that Joseph Campbell points out that myth is often attached to a particular landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the world around you is what's sacred. And of course in today's culture we have a tendency to situate that somewhere else, you know, Jerusalem or Mecca or Rome, and we tend to overlook where we are now. And where I am now, where I live is in Modesto, California. George Lucas's hometown. Many people might have a passing familiarity with what Modesto was like 50 years ago. If you've seen American Graffiti, where were you in 62? You know, a marvelous movie. But today, uh, the Modesto area, it's a lot of concrete and asphalt, uh, kind of a bunker and silo skyline. There's an agricultural world around us, but also we're a bedroom community to the Bay Area, which is 90 miles away, so a lot of commuting back and forth. And people aren't necessarily situated in the landscape. I taught junior high for a number of years. And at the beginning of every year, I'd ask students questions like, well, what phase of the moon are we in? which might seem strange for someone teaching them literature and English to ask. But, you know, we need to be observant. And some students knew there was a moon in the sky, and it was full a lot, and sometimes they didn't notice it. But to know that there were different phases and to notice that, to look up at the night sky, we don't do that because the neon drowns that out. You know, we're more likely to pay attention to the golden arches than to the rainbow in the sky, which we might catch after a rainstorm if we're driving somewhere. But there seems a disconnect with the world around us. Mm -hmm. So in terms of exploring for myself the world that I'm in right now, you know, what was here before we came, before the Europeans arrived here? This area of the Central Valley, uh, which was often, you know, marsh in the winter and hot desert in the summer, the people who lived here were the Miwok. As several different divisions of the Miwok. These were the Valley Miwok, a few miles to the east of here. You know, as the land starts to rise, and more trees pop up. Uh, that's where the Foothill Miwok would live. And uh, they would often summer in the Sierra Nevada. They didn't really live there full time. Also, there was a branch, the Coastal Miwok, north of San Francisco. Uh, and they all tended to share the same cultural nexus, the same mythology, the mm-hmm. same practices, and the same rituals. So I started looking into that. And that also meant, you know, looking at what the reaction of Europeans were when we first arrived on the scene, which in California would have been the friars starting the missions, you know, that started up and down the coast, but then they started wandering inland to see what was here. And two things the friars said, uh, and they kept copious notes, you know, they documented everything, and two observations that recur time and again in their journals and in their official records about the native peoples in California was that, number one, they had no religion, and number two, 
They lived like animals. And of course, to the Spanish, it certainly looked like they had no religion because nobody went to church on Sunday or Tuesday or Thursday. You know, there wasn't any particular time of day that was different from the secular routine. And there wasn't a special place that people went to to sing sacred songs and to worship their deity. You know, so that's what it looked like to them. They weren't aware, as we are now, as, of course, the natives were at the time, you know, that everything to them was church. Everything was sacred, you know, the land. They lived in a storied landscape. Mm-hmm. You know, every tree, every rock, every spring had a story to it. Whenever you built a lodge, building your home, you start off with a ritual that duplicated the original creation myth of your people because you're laying the foundations of your home just as the foundation of the worlds were laid. And they just always lived in a sacred world. So going to church was a weird concept for them. Also, if you'd walked into a Miwok village 200 years ago and walked up to someone and said, brother, sister, you live like animals. I suspect the reaction would have been, thank you. What a wonderful thing to say. Because the animals taught them. You know, they provided the wisdom, the knowledge that they need to survive in this landscape, to get along in the world. So that's who you would go to. You know, where do the valley oak trees come from? From the crested blue jay who eats the acorns and sheds them, spreads them, plants them all up and down the valley. You know, that's part of their mythology, but it also comes from observing the world around them. Mm-hmm. You know, how is the world made? You know, one Miwok tale tells about how, you know, the earth starts off as bare rock, and then rain comes, and it starts washing a bit of the rock away that turns into dirt, and then eventually plants sprout, seeds, and you have trees growing up, and leaves fall, and add different layers of earth. And sure enough, you go into the forest, you go up towards Yosemite, wander around, start digging around underneath your feet. There's a layer of leaves and twigs. And then you go further down and it's matted together. And then there's soil and so on. So this was the world around them. It's myth because it's sacred. And it's myth because it's a story, which essentially is what myth means. But that doesn't mean it's not true. They were observing the world around them. Right. Yeah, now that's one of the things that I find particularly interesting and often kind of challenging for people when they're thinking about mythology because we usually set science up in opposition to myth. And it is true, I think, historically that the rise of science and the development of scientific observation and methodologies and the accumulation of that kind of information has, in some cases, undermined or undercut a mythological perspective on the world. But they're not necessarily separate, would you say? I mean... Definitely not. Certainly not incompatible. There, there has been a separation in the last few centuries, you know, as we come up with a specialized field of science. And it's interesting how mythology is becoming a specialized field in itself. For the longest time, mythology didn't exist as a separate field. You 
find it in colleges even now as part of psychology or literature or anthropology, folklore. But rarely, rarely is a separate discipline in itself. Science, too, though, is shaped by myths, by what we believe. We were talking a bit earlier, so I'll mention this now, back in, I believe it was the early 18th century, a number of museums in Europe had meteorite collections. You know, these rocks that landed in farmers' fields, they would bring them to the university, they would be displayed in the museums. And then, I believe it was Lavoisier, the head of the French Academy of Sciences, and the entire French Academy, pardon me, they made a determination that rocks, as everyone knows, do not fall out of the sky. So every museum in Europe except one got rid of their collections of meteorites. And the one that didn't, in my mind, I think of it as the University of Heidelberg, but I could be way off base there. It's just what sticks in this brain of mine. They didn't get rid of their collection because their meteorite was too large to move. So we lost, you know, from a scientific perspective, a lot of valuable information because of, you know, the mythology of science, if Mm -hmm. you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, no, they're not incompatible at all. People I know who are scientists have a wonderful sense of the sacred, whether or not they believe in a specific religion or a specific deity. A number of them are drawn to it because of that sense of the sacred and that wonder and that mystery for which there are no words, and they want to explore that further. And Joseph Campbell himself you know, found tremendous compatibility with science. Back, in fact, in the early 30s, uh, he was on a scientific expedition up to Alaska aboard the Grampus with Ed Ricketts collecting specimens, and they spent most of the summer talking about new discoveries in quantum physics. You know, they were talking about Neil Bohr's and Werner Heisenberg and so on, things that still spin people's brains today. And that, I think, is key to mythology, this sense of wonder about the world about you. But also, it has lessons for us today. Uh, one area where we're impacted here in the Central Valley, and a lot of people don't think of the Central Valley and Modesto as a source of this, but salmon. Uh-huh. The salmon have been dying. They've been going extinct in Northern California. The salmon runs... You know, for a number of years, you know, were far less than what they should have been. And frankly, you go back a little over a century, and the stories that we're told is that you could walk across the river. We have a bit to the north of us, the Stanislaw River, and to the south of us, the Tuolumne River, kind of boundaries of this area, if you will, uh, and both would be loaded with salmon, and you could walk across So I'm told from one shore to the other without getting your feet wet during the spawning season. There were so many million of salmon. And as recently as three years ago, the Department of Fish and Game, as they were then, I think now they're Fish and Wildlife, which along with the federal government and, you know, similar governmental agencies mm-hmm. in Oregon and even up in the state of Washington, you know, control and manage, I think, is the word they use for the fisheries. And fisheries are not hatcheries. Hatcheries are where you raise fish and then you, you know, 
add them to the current existing wildlife. Fisheries are essentially the whole system where fish are born, live, and die. So, you know, in Stanislaw River, they're born, they swim out to the ocean. A couple years later, they come back in, spawn, and the next generation comes out. And that whole system, including out in the ocean, is part of the fishery. And the salmon fishing season was canceled for two years, which is a multi-million dollar industry, hundreds of millions of dollars, because they were depleted in this part of Northern California. So I have to ask myself, what are we doing wrong? Mm-hmm. What is missing here You know, when we're looking at this? Because we're looking at the stakeholders when people are making policy decisions, the fishermen, the farmers who want the water from the rivers, uh, you know, the people who buy the fish and so on, the political considerations of that. But there's one stakeholder that we don't pay a lot of attention to, and that's the salmon themselves. Whereas... As I mentioned earlier with the Miwok and with the native peoples in general, and not just the native peoples here, but around the world, because this is the way myth has worked. The animals are the teachers, and especially the primary food animal, which is what the salmon are. So I've been taking a look at salmon myths the last few years, and there are little fragments of Miwok myths about the salmon, but some of the best-developed myths, and they're telling the same stories, are from the Northwest. And, in fact, the story that I think I want to bring up right mm-hmm. now is a Haida legend, which is up in British Columbia, southeast Alaska, that general area where salmon fed the people, as they did down here, though acorns mm-hmm. are very important here as well. It's called the story of Salmon Boy, okay. which gives us a little hint of what's what it's about. And it starts with this boy, who is loved by his parents. He's loved by his mother. In fact, she, you know, trades and gets for him this beautiful copper necklace, which is, you know, took all of her goods to to track down for him. So he wears this copper necklace. He was the light of her life, but. Boy's attitude left a lot to be desired, you know, perhaps because he felt a little bit spoiled as he was growing up. So, you know, everything to him was a commodity, if you will. You know, he'd go fishing, they'd eat the salmon, you know, he'd just toss the bones, toss whatever meat he wasn't eating in the bushes. You know, if he's walking along, he'd be stepping on the salmon that they'd caught. You know, just no respect at all for them. And people would tell him to watch out. You know, that's people's food. And, you know, we don't know if the salmon like what you're doing. And <laughs> what does it matter if the salmon like what I'm doing or not? You know, so he he just blundered through life and didn't pay any attention really, to his surroundings. He was the most important thing in his life and satisfying his needs and urges. And in fact, one day his mother served him a dish of salmon for lunch, and it's kind of like, oh, salmon again. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a Monday, we had a Tuesday, we're having it again today, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And this salmon is moldy, it's just yucky. And of course it wasn't, but he just didn't want to eat the salmon. So he picked it up, he threw it on the ground, and he went out to play with his friends. And what do you do with your friends when, you know, it's summertime and the river is right there? You're going to go play and swim in the river. So he does, yeah, this is something he did every day. But while he's out there swimming, 
you know, as he got farther in the river current, kind of pulled him a little farther out. You know, and you, you get caught in the current on occasion. You know, the children, they, they've been swimming all their lives. They know how to deal with this. So he's swimming, you know, trying to go with the flow, but he can't escape the current. And it pulls him out further, pulls him down, down, and he drowns. And so he's gone. He sinks into the river. But the salmon people come. And they take him. And they pick him up. And he's no longer in his body. And they're no longer in their bodies. Because they're done with their bodies. They've given their bodies to us. To the people who need to eat the salmon. And so they pick him up. And they take him back to their village. Which is down the river. And out into the ocean. And when he gets to their village, he notices it looks a lot like his village at home. I mean, they're the same lodges and people, you know, once they're out of their salmon skin, they just look like good old folk, you know, and he's hanging out with them. This is cool. And they're teaching him. He's hungry. He doesn't have anything to eat. Now, he's heard the children. They're playing in the brook that runs behind the village, you know, and he can hear the children playing. And so, you know, the salmon people tell him, oh, well, go eat one of our children. You know, that's perfectly all right. Just make sure, you know, that you take everything that you don't eat, you know, the bones, the fins, whatever, and return it to the brook, return it to the water. This is very important because our children will then be reborn. And so he does that. You know, when he goes down to the brook, they look like salmon. And he catches one and he eats it. He returns it to the water. At the end of the day, the kids always come back up. You know, and they return and everything is wonderful. One day, you know, he notices the kids are coming up and one child is crying because his foot is deformed. You know, he's kind of hobbling along and he feels such pity and such compassion for the child and then he thinks, gee, I dropped a fin, you know, as I was taking the food back to the river. So he goes scrambling around on the ground and feeling around for it. And he finally finds the fin, goes to the stream, throws it in, and the child is miraculously healed. You know, so he's made whole. And so he, he lives an idyllic life there, playing with these people, becoming part of them, becoming one with them. But then the time comes when it's spring, and it's time to go back up and return to the rivers. Now, the boy, he swam with the salmon people because he belonged to the salmon people now. So he went up with them, and he had a salmon body. Now, and he's heading up the river right past the village where he was born and raised, and his mother catches him, and she recognizes him because... He has the same copper necklace around his neck that she had given him. So she knows it's her boy. And she's so excited. Everybody else is like, <laughs> she kind of flipped out for a fish here. She takes her little salmon boy home and she hugs him and she talks to him and she loves him and she sings him songs and tells him stories and his head starts to emerge and a little bit more and a little bit more and it takes eight days for him to shed his salmon body but eventually it's the boy he has returned and he's there whole 
except he's been with the salmon people. So now he has a special mission while he is here. He talks to the villagers. He talks to the people. And whereas before, you know, they told him, we don't think the salmon folks would really like that, you know, the things that he did to disrespect the salmon. Now he knows the full story and what happens. So he explains to them how you have to very carefully return everything to the water that you don't eat and use everything that you do, that you respect the salmon. And if you do this, they will be reborn. And if you respect them, if you honor them, they will keep coming back year after year after year. You know, so he teaches them a few rituals to help with this. You know, and he points out to them he's not going to be there very long. He has just a very limited time, which he does, because eventually you know, the old salmon start coming back down the river who haven't died off yet. You know, they're ancient. Everybody has spawned. You know, and in fact, he sees one salmon coming down the river that is so old, its snout has that kind of beaky look, and its skin is almost translucent. And he realizes, this is my body. You know, this is me. So he spears that salmon, and as he does so, he dies. And the villagers come, and they take him, salmon boy, you know, they perform the rituals and they sing the songs and they return his body to the water. And he sinks into the depths where he meets the salmon people and they return to the village out into the sea. And that speaks to me mm-hmm. because it brings the salmon into the equation. I don't think with millions and millions of salmon being harvested. And that's a strange word. We're harvesting them. You know, it immediately treats them as object, you know, as commodity, if you will. But I I don't see us going back to that time where we're going to be living in villages by the stream, you know, and reacting exactly that way. But this does bring the salmon forward. And I think by telling these stories, by looking at, you know, what are we doing different from generations ago when the salmon were abundant, this speaks to us now in terms of how to address this. You know, we tell these stories. I don't know what songs to sing, but we can sing these songs, metaphorically speaking, and honor the salmon. And just by doing that, you know, by tending to that. I think it will change attitudes slowly. Just don't necessarily begin in the halls of Congress or in a bureaucracy up in Washington or Sacramento or Tacoma or Salem. Uh, It begins in the hearts of human beings and myth speaks to the heart and it brings in different kind of truth, a powerful truth that stirs the soul tending to that by bringing that forward and sharing those stories more, sharing them in schools, telling people how the natives treat it, not just the salmon, but the world around them with that same respect, it slowly over time alters our attitude, or if not our attitude, our children's and their children's, so that we learn to live in harmony with nature rather than as something that is separate that is using nature, a desold nature. 
You know, I think that for a lot of us right now, when we think about our disconnected relationship to the natural world, we feel a certain amount of despair about the disconnection. And there's also this sort of sense that we're uniquely screwed up. All these other people in the past, they sort of got it. You know, they had these stories about being connected. And uh, we're doomed because we've gotten so far apart and we're just so uh, greedy and wasteful. And so listening to you, I'm realizing, wow, okay, I don't know how old this story is, but it's definitely not a new one. And yet this issue, (laughs) what kind of respect do you need to have for the beings that sustain you? That was still a topic for a story. So human beings have been grappling with this question for a long time. And so although many things have changed, and as you say, you know, we're not living in the village by on the riverbank right now, and and most of us probably will not do that again, this isn't a new problem. And so that suggests the possibility that we can learn something new, just as the people who were hearing this story, you know, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, whatever, um, were being reinforced in that attitude of respect. Yeah, and these stories arise in part is to teach people, you know, how to engage the world around them in harmony. And there's no good place to cut off this interesting conversation that I'm having with Steve Geringer about Salmon Boy and the importance of mythology in Modesto and in the world generally. So I'm just going to do it right there. Um, That's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth in the Mojave this week. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you'll join me again next week to hear further reflections from Steve Geringer of the Joseph Campbell Foundation about mythology. In the meantime, you know what I'm about to say. Happy myth-making, and keep the mystery in your life alive.